0: Welcome to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about anything and everything related to industrial and organizational psychology. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butte. And joining me today is the freshly minted Dr. Daniel Krantz. Congratulations, Dan.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, inviting me on.
0: So as we speak, you are just one week removed uh, from your, your dissertation defense. My first question is, how are you feeling right now?
1: feels good. It, a, it took took a while to to finally get it done, so I was yeah definitely a great feeling. Right when they said you pass,
0: yeah it is it is pretty great. You still have the new doctor smell. So, <laughs> everyone who earns a Ph.D. has a story to share about it, but some stories are more interesting than others. And unfortunately, what makes a story interesting is the difficulty and the conflict and the obstacles that you have to overcome. And I think that you in that regard maybe have a more interesting story than most of us. For now, I want to rewind the tape and go all the way back to where and when you first learned about IO psychology. So how did you find out about this field?
1: That would have been 2012, 2013, something like that, which was after I already had my undergrad and I was working in recruiting at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center a UPMC. I was just doing the work, enjoying it, and then we started using these assessments from a company called Select International. I was like, man, where are these personality, job fit assessments, where are these coming from? What's, these are kind of cool. Uh, and I just started to look into that more and was like, oh, there's this field of IO psychology. Never heard of it. From there, I just became really intrigued with how personality assessments and other kinds of selection tools are created, everything that goes into making them. The directors of where I worked were real kind that introduced me to a couple of the consultants at Select International, and I just learned more from there and started the process of applying to schools. And even though during my time in grad school, I wasn't really doing selection stuff and research, that was kind of my first love that got me into the field.
0: So what was your undergraduate degree in?
1: It's actually a a psychology degree uh, as well as a business double major. I went to a really uh, small uh, school in undergrads. We didn't have any I.O. class or anything. I think it was mentioned once in Intro to Psychology, the field of I.O., for 15 seconds. Honestly, I might have skipped that day it was mentioned, too. I never heard of it when I was in undergrad.
0: Which is a pretty common story, uh, unfortunately. You got an undergraduate degree in psychology as, as well as in, in business, and you weren't really introduced to IO psychology until after you had already graduated. So, if you're working as a recruiter for UPMC, you get exposed to these assessments, you start getting curious about, hey, you know, where do these assessments come from? How are they developed? And then you start thinking about making a career out of this. Was it Assessments specifically that appealed to you, or once you got to know IO psychology, were there other topics that jumped out at you? Yeah, it
1: was definitely, it started out of like, oh, selection, this stuff's really cool. But as I learned more, I became interested in a lot of other areas as well. I ended up you know, get, getting accepted at University of Akron and my advisor, Dr. Jim Diefendorf. he's big into emotional labor field. He's done different research with, with nurses and because I worked at a medical center, recruiting nurses, that's what attracted me, me to him as well. And there's just so many areas starting at that point, like, oh, this is a... Uh, a big deal as well, looking at how people manage their emotions, manage stress, how to maintain healthy levels of engagement without burning out. Once I realize the importance of something, I find it interesting. And so, you know, even how we manage performance, how we train and develop people, which can also help things like turnover and burnout as well. And so really spread out from there as I learn
0: more about the field. When you applied to schools, was the thought right from the start, I want to get a PhD in this, or did you consider maybe just doing a master's and then changed your mind later?
1: I pretty quickly zeroed in on a PhD. Part of it was for practical reasons of like a lot of master's programs you have to pay for. There's more PhD programs that you're funded for and already having a job I committed to. If I'm going to go in 100% into this, I'm going to go all the way. The master's programs, they're not quite as research focused. And I was really curious to see that side of things at at a very deep level. I always enjoyed statistics, even though I wasn't getting a chance to use that skill at all as a recruiter, and so I knew as well the best training for that would be through a PhD program.
0: You decided that, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to find a program where I can get funding to do this and make it my full-time career while I'm doing it. and then. The other focus is is research-based. So you knew it wasn't just about getting those initials after your name or specifically related to some career outcome you wanted. There were things you were interested in and you knew that getting into the statistics and the research design and all that kind of rigor that comes with a research degree is what you needed to really find that out.
1: Back before I started applying, I had always just assumed, oh, PhD is for smarter people. I'm not smart enough to pursue something like that. And it really took those conversations and interactions with the consultants at Select International to build up a, just a knowledge and awareness that, oh, this is something I can do. You know, people with PhDs are nothing that special. I especially know that now that I have one. You don't have to be a genius to get one. You know, a hard work ethic is much more important.
0: Yeah, I had a conversation with an instructor pretty early on in my program as well, and She just said something to me that will stick with me for the rest of my life. She just said, it's not about being smart enough. You're smart enough because you're here. It's not just like the smartest people that are going to get through a program. It's more about being a particular kind of crazy. And I don't use that word in a negative, pejorative sense towards mental health issues. That's not what she meant at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, She just meant that you have the kind of motivation that is going to ensure that you stick with this despite all the setbacks, despite how hard it is and how many trade-offs you have to make in your life. If you're the kind of person that's going to do that, then you're probably going to make it through. I'm wondering, you start the PhD program, what's going on in your life outside of your academic career?
1: When I first started, I just got married. That was the big thing at the time when I first started the program. So moving from Pittsburgh to Akron, Ohio, and that was it at the time. It was pretty simple back then.
0: When you think back to that time, what? Was required of you to step into that world full time. How important was the support of your spouse at that point?
1: It's funny looking back because my wife actually she was working at that time for a startup and so really wasn't having a regular income because it was like a true like startup startup. There's not much money there. They're not. They don't have like big Series A funding coming in right now. So. It was kind of a commitment at first that we're definitely gonna be living cheap. Cheap, we have a, a little bit of savings. We're each gonna fully support each other to pursue the thing we wanna pursue, whether it's me you know, doing the schooling side and her helping get this startup off the ground and just making it work with what we had.
0: So it was a, a team effort. And if you both weren't supporting each other, it probably wouldn't have worked out that well for either of you. It
1: would have crashed and burned at some point. <laughs>
0: I'm assuming that at the University of Akron, it follows a traditional kind of path where you have coursework and then comps of some kind, and then you're working on the proposal and writing the dissertation and then finally getting to the defense. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. So, When you think on your coursework, is there a particular course that stood out in your memory? Like, wow, that was, that was really influential or that really changed the course of my life or just anything that was like wow this is really hard or or a lot harder than i expected it to be
1: good question Uh, i think it was during my second year it was a more specialized class I can't quite remember the name of it, but a lot of it was focused on emotion regulation, control theory, areas like that. One of the things that's pretty common in, in courses is that you build up your big project during the course. You're building up a research proposal to present that you write up. That was the first time of really going through that whole process and submitting it for me. and. It was a lot harder. I remember going in, I was like, I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do. I was like, all right. All right. I think I got it. This isn't going to be too bad. And the whole process of dotting all your I's, crossing all your T's on the exact theory that you're using to present your argument, talking about any competing theories and everything. It was just a lot harder uh, than I I thought and harder in a good way. You really have to dive in and know your stuff to bring a good proposal and a good research study to the table. And then at the same time, to answer the first question you had, it was in that same class, learning about different motivation theories. Specifically, my thesis ended up being Kind of centered around self-determination theory, which is focused on you know, need satisfaction, that it, different needs that really play a role in, in our well-being. And I had never really thought from a framework like that before. I, I'd say more naturally, it was kind of more like goal-setting theory is how I thought. And so, getting a very different perspective on worker motivation, focused more on thriving and well-being as opposed to just performance and goal-setting, was a very different way of thinking. From me. I think changed a lot about the way I approach anything from performance management or other, other areas in the field.
0: It's really interesting because normally when I have these conversations, the topics are flipped. I've talked to people who are fairly comfortable with the kind of thing that you're talking about, but they're super intimidated by the statistics. And the course that stands out for them is when they realized, yeah, the statistics is, is really, really hard, but I can do it. And they realize they can do it and they kind of push forward from there. It sounds like statistics were always an interest for you. Was it always something that was a strength and came naturally to you or were you challenged in that area as well?
1: Definitely bit was challenged. I, I've always had a confidence in being able to learn statistics. You know, there's been at times more maybe anxiety around some of the coding with things. But as far as understanding statistics and what's happening, that that all was more natural for
0: me. You get through the coursework and then the next stage in this whole process is a comprehensive exam. What was that like for you? At
1: the University of Akron, you have a, a couple days of closed book essay writing and doing certain statistical analyses and then starting a couple months later you have the expertise section you're a week to write a couple of you know, really big, difficult essays based on our area of expertise. Heading into that final semester right before taking comps, was when we had our first kid, and my studying was different than everyone else in my cohort because I was basing it around a newborn schedule as well as teaching class at the university. And so in that sense, it was, it was different for sure. A lot more early morning and late night studying than during the day studying.
0: Yeah. Were you intimidated at all by the the comprehensive exam or did you feel like, I got this by the time it came around?
1: I think I was opposite of most other people in my cohort in that the closed book comprehensive exams, I did not have anxiety about those. Very little, I guess. I was always confident in the the expertise part, the week-long writing, was more anxiety-provoking for me. Partly just because you have a week to do this, and you always know as you're writing this, these large essays that your, your work can be a lot better, but there's not really time to make it perfect. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to settle at some points as you're writing.
0: You, know, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, this is done, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the comps part is like, you know, you have a certain number of hours to just brain dump information, and I don't know. I guess I guess the brain dumping thing of like, oh, it's gonna be done in four hours. Like, it kind of sucks in the moment, but uh, it's got to be done it's in a couple hours, so it's fine. <laughs> it's kind so of my perspective.
0: You've gotten through the coursework, you've gotten through the comprehensive exams, and you're married. You've got a newborn, and you're teaching. So are you teaching right from the very start of this program, all the way through?
1: They start us right away with a teaching intro to psychology, and so there's like a, at the University of Akron, there's a, before the actual program starts, it's about a month or two of training to get ready to teach the course, and then once the program starts, you're teaching.
0: I think it's appealing to a lot of people because it's a way of paying the, the bill, right? But I wonder, did your teaching experience influence your scholarship or your own graduate work?
1: I love teaching, especially when I got to teach statistics, the process of making statistics understandable to people and interesting to people that a lot of people weren't in the program, were kind of intimidated by statistics, meaning in the undergrad psych program there. So I love that process. One of the things that really stuck out to me during the training to teach was different different ways I guess that I guess racial differences in how we compare white to black how black Americans or black students are a little bit less likely to seek help from teachers and that's that was one of the things that always stuck out to me okay if I'm gonna be pursuing you know equity in the class I can't really treat everyone the same you know I need to to realize really take people from an individual level as to what they need to uh, succeed and putting in specific efforts to specifically with black students to to make sure that they are comfortable approaching me with questions and that I approach them and make sure that they're they're doing well, that I can uh, help answer things that they're struggling with. And so specifically intervening in areas that the research was showing, hey, this is where some, there's some racial differences here and where certain groups struggle more than others. making sure I'm making an effort to intervene in those areas and not just treating everyone as, oh, this is my class. I'm going to do this way of teaching with everyone.
0: Did you have any trouble making the shift between teaching at the level that you need to teach undergraduates intro to psych or stats to the more rigorous level that you're dealing with the same subjects but at a much more you know detailed and rigorous level as a graduate student?
1: there definitely is that struggle at first you know with statistics for example realizing those concepts that are second nature to a lot of I.O. people of like something like standard deviation or a normal distribution and making that understandable to people that have no statistical background you really have to take a step back and put yourself in their shoes to see where they're coming from. Another learning point with. St- statistics specifically was that something that I thought would be easier to pick up and something I thought would be harder for students to pick up was often reversed. I realized pretty quickly, don't make assumptions. Start from the ground up with everything.
0: So you get through comps, you pass them obviously, and now you're into writing a proposal. Uh, mm-hmm. For your dissertation, what was going on for your life academically and personally during that time?
1: I was after comps. That year, I stopped teaching uh, and I had a uh, job in an HR department instead, so a bit of applied experience instead. This our first kid was a, a year old, then year' two old a year old, I guess. And so, my life at that point. And those are the main things. I still had a couple extra courses to take at that time and then, you know, mixed with the job and the kid and then my wife had just changed careers. So she, she was switched into a software development. She, she kind of you know taught herself how to, how to develop and was just starting in that field at that point.
0: Okay, so lots of changes in life. You're switching from teaching to working in an HR department. You know, sometimes I think people imagine that once you're in the dissertation writing stage that it's like, oh, you get up in the morning and there's like 12 hours of writing and then you put a period <laughs> at the end of a sentence and you're done for the day. But for most of us, there's a lot more going on in life and mm-hmm. the dissertation writing kind of goes along with that. Now, you shared in a status on LinkedIn that you know something pretty remarkable was going on in your life right around the time that you offered your proposal. Are you comfortable sharing what was going on then?
1: We had our second kid coming and you know it's funny like the first kid uh, I'm sure a lot of parents can can relate to this the first kid is so much excitement and nervousness about everything and then when the second kid is gonna be coming soon a lot more confidence of like oh yeah I mean it's a little hard but we've done this before so I could be too bad and so as it was leading up to the proposal date, I knew that it was right around the, t- the due date, and you know I made the committee aware of like, hey, we may have to push this back a week or something, or you know in case the, the kid comes suddenly. And I was so confident. A couple, month, couple weeks before the, the due date, my friend was like, hey, do you want to do a marathon in January? This was like, it was in July or something at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just like, oh yeah, that sounds fun. All right, yeah. I'll I'll do that. I'll, I'll have time for that. And then in in August, the due date come. The due date comes, and the kid is born a little bit before the, the proposal date. And everything was great at first. And then I think it was her uh, second day that all of a sudden everyone, you know, us and the doctors realized uh, she she really doesn't have much much energy. Like she's sleeping a lot. And, and so they they ran some tests because I think her, her oxygen is. Oxygenate, oxygenation was low, and and then very quickly she had to get rushed to a larger pediatric facility, and it turned out she had a heart issue, congenital heart defect, and the name for it was is HAPVR. Essentially, all the the veins and arteries are just kind of in a mess in her; they're connected to wrong things, and and so she wasn't getting good oxygen at all. Blood flow is not the greatest, and so it was quickly decided, hey, she's going to need Um, heart surgery in a a week and so you know that's it's really stressful leading Mm -hmm. up to that point and then she has the heart surgery it's successful and it's still a long recovery process and so we're still in the hospital and then by the time we were able to leave the hospital it was like 3 p.m and on like a Tuesday and then my proposal was the next day in the morning and so I think I gave that next day I think I gave like a it was probably the worst presentation of my life, but it was good enough to pass the, the proposal. I remember walking into the proposal and I was like, oh, I have zero anxiety about how this goes. Like, there, there's just more important things going on right now. So yeah. I just, pre- you know, presented, answered questions, and just like, if you can pass me, cool. If not, okay, cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and my dissertation was like a pretty extensive project that while my wife and, and our youngest is, you know, an infant is going through a long recovery process, where there's still a ton of cardiology appointments and neurology appointments as well, checking on how she's doing. My like data collection was a pretty immense data collection, where I was basically collecting data at 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day for, for that semester, and so it was definitely a pretty draining few months of, of data collection.
0: Yeah, you know my own heart is just like pounding in my chest just hearing that story and and just like you it's you know it's mainly about your child and and the heart surgery and 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 the, the medical problems around that and all of a sudden the academic stuff as important as it seemed maybe a week before then kind of fades into the background and you realize that like in the grand scheme of things this isn't that big a deal and i'll get through it i think it's important for you know anyone considering going through. The, the journey that you just finished up to realize that your life doesn't stop. It doesn't go on pause for the number of years um, that you're going through this program. Life goes on, and, and sometimes, you know, those other things become more important, much more important than what you're doing academically.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's always going to be unexpected stressors that... That
0: come up you get through the proposal like you said it's probably not your best uh, presentation but it's good enough and that's another lesson i think that a lot of us learn through this journey is that good enough is good enough you <laughs> know trying to, to polish everything to a shining point is probably not going to serve you very well because you mm-hmm. need to keep your head down and keep moving in this case your proposal passes and now we're going to do the data collection we're going to carry out the plan that was approved in the proposal and write the dissertation, and then goes through several processes or you're writing in stages or chapters. Then you finally get to a a dissertation defense. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, life hasn't stopped for you personally. Life also hasn't stopped in the world around you. So for the last year or so, depending on when you're listening to this episode, a a good bit of context you might want to be aware of is, we're in the COVID-19 pandemic. So how does your Uh, life and your academic work change as a result of all that's happened in the last year?
1: Fortunately, that semester of gathering data, which was right before the the pandemic, fortunately I got all the data, I didn't expect to, I thought I was going to be kind of bleeding into March and April, which would have been during the pandemic. I thought I'd be collecting data then too, but I got it all in somehow in that first semester. And you know, so the start of the next semester, um, starting to you know, figure out you know, data cleaning, figuring out how to do some of the analyses I had to do and things. And then yeah, and then the pandemic hits and and so you know pretty quickly our you know we're pulling our kids uh, out of daycare. Our youngest had been delayed putting her into daycare because during the long recovery process, she's her immune system is down because of all that's mm-hmm. happening inside of her. And so we were just in the process of having her part-time in daycare, planning to work to full-time to daycare, but you know, pull them, pull them both out completely. And at the same time, my wife has a, has a full-time job from home as a developer. And we're in this tiny little apartment with not much room to hide if you're trying to do work and there's two little kids around. It turned everything upside down. As a doctoral student, I'm not the income provider for this family. And so my wife's job it definitely 100% takes priority. And we went through this process of establishing you know, a schedule with our, our oldest uh, kid that I guess was three at the time and a schedule, like a daycare schedule to keep things flowing, like our, our own little in the house daycare, stay at home daycare, we called it. And, and doing all that, it quickly became pretty difficult, I think, to get regular work done. And I really had to start being like, okay, one step at a time. You know, they're napping for 45 minutes here. I think I can figure out this one next thing. And then, you know, because a lot of just dis- a lot of the dissertation, it really, you really have to get into deep thought to do it. It's mm-hmm. hard to hard to make progress sometimes if there's you know a lot of distractions all at once. And so, yeah, it really I guess became a. A balancing act where definitely the, the kids and, and just keeping kind of good family well-being was the more important part than getting my dissertation done as quickly
0: as possible. You made a good point about so much of the work that you have to do. It requires deep thought, concentration, uninterrupted time. And this whole process was designed for full-time students who live at a university. But most of us don't find ourselves in that position where we have hours in a university library of uninterrupted time, so you had to learn to fit that work into the small spaces where it was available, and that's probably a a skill and ability that's going to serve you well uh, for the rest of your your career and your life as well. So very hard times, but sometimes we adapt and surprise ourselves at how well we can adapt. And it sounds like you found a good way through that and found a balance point among a lot of competing priorities and got to the dissertation defense, which was about a week ago. And now you've exhaled, you're feeling pretty good, I'm sure about what you've accomplished and and rightfully so and and, and proud of of what you've done. And I'm sure grateful for the support you've had uh, from your spouse. What's next for you?
1: The next thing is I haven't been able to go all in yet on the job search, so that that process now I'm able to get more time into that. It had been a while since I had really pre- applied to jobs over the years, so remembering, oh yeah, writing like cover letters and doing all this, it really takes a while. It, it can take a lot of time to apply to one job and then you know then write adapt that cover letter to another job, and so I'm finally at a place uh, now as a I guess as a family where able to devote more time to the job pursuit of things Mm -hmm. and then at the same time trying to finish up and work on you know a couple of research projects and figure out how to get my dissertation published taking a a segment of that and you know our kids still aren't in daycare so it's still working around that as you know with the kids while I'm doing all that.
0: And you know I think you, you point to something that's unique to applied fields like ours is that we can't disappear entirely into one world either academia or you know the I want to wish you the best of luck in your job search. Hearing your story, you seem like the kind of person who's going to do great, that you have a great sense of perseverance and being able to adapt to changing circumstances. So here's one more changing circumstance for you and back in the world of full-time employment. If you could give some advice to anyone listening who is where you were when you were doing that recruiting job at UPMC and just getting interested in IO psychology and thinking about, maybe I want to go into a PhD program in this. What advice would you give that person? I'd
1: say one thing I think I, I learned as I went through it is to stop focusing on the, the end goal at the into the five years, for me a little little bit longer, of getting the the PhD and then starting your life with your new education. Don't focus on that. Focus on what you're going to be enjoying while you're in grad school, specific things in the research that you're excited to learn, specific applied experiences. Focus more on what you're going to be finding interesting and what you're going to be learning as you're going through the program as opposed to thinking about the end end goal of what comes next.
0: Great advice. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Dan. And I wish you and your family the best.
1: All right. Thank you very much for having me.